listening to the Food Talk Show. Hi there, my name is Sue Nelson and for the next uh, 30 minutes or so we're going to be talking about all things food and drink as usual but I'm not joined by my fellow presenters Holly Shackleton of Speciality Food Magazine or Ollie Lloyd of Great British Chefs. I'm here all on my own in the studio because... I was very lucky a couple of months ago to interview William Chase and we thought we would replay this for you on the Food Talk show because it's so interesting. Um, I'm sure you will have heard of Tyrrell's Crisps and you might have tasted something boozy from the Chase distillery. Um, And all of these were created just by one person, which is William Chase. He's sort of crazy, he's brilliant, he works hard and uh, he's very, very frank about uh, what makes a success and some of the downsides he's had uh, along the way as well. Um, I interviewed him at the fabulous Bread and Jam Festival for Foodies recently, and uh, I thought you would like to listen to how this went. If you want to find out more information about William and uh, Chase Distillery and Tyrrell's Crisps, it'll be on the Food Talk website, of course. Um, But it was a wonderful event. I don't think it should be missed. So please do listen to my interview with William. My name's Sue Nelson, and I'm I'm the presenter of the Food Talk radio show. If you don't know the Food Talk radio show, shame on you. You should be listening to it. It's a podcast once a week. We have thousands and thousands of listeners now, and it's absolutely dedicated to food producers. Uh, loads and loads of hints, I think, um, from people who are doing quite well on, on how you, you know, might be able to make it, and also all sorts of things that we, which we think are appropriate um, in the food sector. I am really, really pleased to be interviewing William Chase today. Uh, and uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm sure you all do, uh, William started off the Tyrrell's Crisp brand, one of my favourites, actually. And uh, Chase Vodka, um, and he's got some new ventures going on as well. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to do a really relaxed interview with William, and I think it'd be really nice to understand literally from day one his journey all the way through um, and how he's managed to sell the Tyrrell's brand and some of the new projects he's working on now. Thank you. Nice and relaxed, I think. Thank you. Uh, Should we do a round of applause or something? That that would be good. Now, um, William, I know that you actually started off as a farmer, mm-hmm. actually. So, so a family farm and uh, in Herefordshire. And I know that you have a great passion for place. So for you, the farm being in Herefordshire was, was, was an important thing and, and part of your you know, starting the journey and uh, growing potatoes. So tell me all about your family farm. So uh, I grew up... Um in Herefordshire on a family farm, my parents were. I think I grew up in a time when, um, on a farm, it's quite privileged to grow up on a farm, especially when you used to go and visit friends in towns and things where after five minutes being in a house, you wondered what else there was to see. So it was quite nice having the space and the freedom and the, and the, and the lifestyle in the countryside that you probably take for granted. And then, so that became part of me. I grew up, I was probably a difficult child. I never did what I was asked to do. I'd always wanted to do the polar opposite. So I was always been seen as, um, 
my godmother always used to call me the brute because I would never play nicely and everything I did, I was always looking for something different. And so um, my childhood was, was, was great. When you look back, we all you know, look on different things in our lives, how we are and what makes us. And I think what I'm going to with this is they say, are people born or are they made? So, so how they are in life. Because to get to the end of everything, I think it's all, it's all about people at the end of the day to do something and how people are motivated and how they want to do things. Mm. So, so growing up on the farm, I always wanted to be a farmer and just do farming stuff. So when I was not very active in college and so all I wanted to do was to go farming. So I started out at the age of, my mother died when I was quite young, so my father sort of lost interest in the farm a little bit and things. So basically when I was 19, I had to buy the farm off him because he was going to sell it. And so I found a bank manager daft enough to lend me a couple of hundred thousand then, which today is equivalent of probably two million without a business plan or anything, and I was just going to go farming and farm and do stuff. So, so and if I can interrupt, that's, that's a, it was predominantly a potato farm? No, it was, it was a mixed farm at the farm. We, my <coughs> mother was quite diverse. She used to have sort of croissants and polythene tunnels and all sorts of diverse different crops. It was a very diverse And you'd farm. worked on the farm literally growing up and working with I had, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think driving tractors and things yeah. was my uh, getting yeah. involved yeah. with my sort of And hobby. I guess then, if you're going to a bank at that stage, they're going to lend against probably the land and other things. So there's, there's a bit of, there's some assets there, which, which maybe made it a little bit easier than perhaps there was, it is yes. when you don't have anything like that. There was, mm. yeah. I think if you've got an asset, yes, if you've got nothing at all, it's quite difficult, isn't mm. it? So it was, um, it was sort of asset-backed, I suppose, if you start with. But then it was, it's always raising the cash. has always been something through life. Everybody's cash starved. However well the business is doing or it isn't doing, everybody needs more cash. We're always, to tr especially to trade with, so Absolutely. that was quite an interesting. So, so you, bought the, uh, you bought the farm off your dad at 19, and then that was a spectacular success. No, that was a, that was a horrendous time, probably. So I worked really hard. I'd worked 18 hours a day on my tractors and to try and become an agricultural contractor. So I had some tractors and some very not-so-intelligent people helping me that we used to go out and work lots of hours for very little money and knowing nothing about business, probably running into a lot of brick walls. But I think it's all part, at the end of it, at the end of 10 years of that, so when I was about 29, I focused on, I got to focus on potatoes, and, but basically went bust for a lot more money when I was 30. So I was, I wondered then, I thought, well, I've worked the last 10 years for nothing, but I hadn't because in hindsight, it taught me all of those rudimentary lessons which I'd like to teach to my children, but I can't, so I think in life, you have to want to ask other people how they get very key staff to do things. They say that one of the, I think one of the key things those staff have to have is a very bad time in life. So you, we all need, sometimes need a severe waking up to actually understand the value of a pound if you haven't got a pound and how to communicate. But if, but if you've gone bankrupt, I mean, <coughs> you know, your whole life is, is, you know, if you look at it in the right way, your whole life could be ruined. You know, you've got no money. Uh, you've got no job. Uh, presumably, the land that you were on, you, you know, what are you, what are you going to do? How, how did you sort of get out of bed the next day? Because we, we, you know, all through life, we all face stuff like this. But what is it that that, that will that that makes you go, okay, I've I've got to get over this. I've, I'm going to do something else, rather than it knock your confidence, if you know what I mean. So, so I think the key the key point of that, because that was a major point in my life, was to I felt quite suicidal at the time as well. So. Um, I was sort of, so I did, the, I did the thing, I just ran away. I went to Australia, there was a farm for rent in Australia, so I thought I could run away and go and farm this farm. My wife wouldn't come with me. She said, no, you've got to stay here. <laughs> and I had two little boys at school as well, so I had to pay for those and look after those. But so I snuck off to Australia for a few weeks and sat in the middle of Geraldton, in the middle of nowhere on this cotton farm, 
and thought, I'm not going to do this. So I thought, I'll go back home again and, and try and make some money and make it go. So I did. And I found a lady that was, I'd been trading with before that used to pack potatoes for Tesco. She said, if you can go out and get me these nice, clean potatoes, I'll pay you in, within 24 hours. So you can pay the farmers because there's a bankrupt. You've got no credibility. So that's how I got back on my feet again. The receiver, when I went bust, let me keep my car. So I had a car worth £10,000. So that was my sort of seed startup cash again when I was 30. And um, so I had £10,000 and this lady that would buy potatoes off me and pay me within 24 hours for them. So I could go around local farmers and I could offer to buy their potatoes and pay them straight away and buy the best ones and sell them to this lady to sell them to Tesco's. So that's basically the seed of the cash, that how I managed to get training again. And I think, I think if, you, if you're in that position, you might think that your credibility has gone. But what I think you're trying to say underneath all that is you've just learnt so much. Exactly. Period, it's experience. Actually. You know? And, and, and it may reshape the way that you sell things or the way that you talk about things or, or it actually may enhance your credibility because you know now not what to do as opposed to just what to do. Exactly. Yeah, learn by your mistakes. I suppose that's the, that's the best expression, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and, and I don't think any of us, especially get older, have been through business life and not had a couple of failures along the way. No, I'll exactly. try and brush mine under the carpet, but, you know. Well, that, that was the thing. <laughs> I was interested in with the media then, trying to build a brand once the journalists and they come out. And I think one of the hardest industries in life is probably to be a journalist because you've got to wake up every day and you've got to take a lot of boring stories and you've got to make them quite sexy and interesting. So when every time a journalist would come out, and it was always the bankruptcy thing and the bad things I'd want to hide. But then when people want to expose it, they want to expose all the, all the bad things. You watch all the TV shows, whatever they are on the, on the lifestyle shows, they always want to get the bad bits when somebody's suicidal or they're crying and it's going horribly wrong. It, it makes it, it's a bit arrogant if you just, everything goes right, isn't yeah. it? So yeah. I think that's a good point. So you're selling, you're selling potatoes, clean, lovely clean potatoes. Mm -hmm. How did that then move from crisps? Because you're very used to selling business to business and all of a sudden, it seems to me you sort of changed direction in a way. I know it's still potatoes, but, but, but then you're making that leap to consumers. So I started out with those potatoes, selling them to supermarkets. And at the time, that was when supermarkets in the were just looking for pretty potatoes. They didn't care what they tasted like, because the growth, especially in Tesco's and the big multiples, and were going so fast. That's why I had all the vegetables at the beginning, because they made the most money out of the vegetables, so they didn't care what they tasted like, so long as they had big, pretty potatoes. So Herefordshire was, was quite good, because it had never grown potatoes before. It was normally farmers in smocks, and sort of a few cows and hops and cider apples, and a very, and not a progressive sort of a place for potatoes, but we could grow pretty potatoes there. So I managed to, produce enough clean ones to make some money to get back on the, on the feet. But after, after probably five or six years, everything in life goes in trends and fads. And that was sort of coming towards the end. And so we were looking for the next chapter. So I sort of built a business up, not just growing potatoes, but I was trading between farmers. So I stuck between farmers and the supermarkets. And I've always said, you can make money out of people if you're smarter than them. And at the time, I was smarter <laughs> than the supermarkets. So I could outwit the supermarkets, but then, they get wise and they start paying you on what actually comes out of a load of potatoes, not what they actually just see when they buy it. So the whole thing evolves then into a, you have to get smarter or, you know, nothing lasts forever. So, and being the producer, always the buck stops with you. You'll never make any money as a producer because you just get left at the, as a farmer, you just get left at the end of the food chain. Unless you grow a lucky crop and you're lucky mm -hmm. at certain times. So I had one day where it had about 10 lorries, and we were trading potatoes from all over the country then, from the West Country to the Midlands to the supermarkets, which was getting tired then. And we were working harder and harder, having to do more for less money. So the idea came, one day we had a load of potatoes rejected at 
this farmer was, was in tears because all his processing potatoes were going to go to McCain's, and they were all going rotten and running out of the shed, and he wasn't very happy. So he wanted me to do something with them, so I managed to get them into kettle chips. So I sold them one load, and they liked these spuds, and they bought the lot, and they were really rough, rifty spuds, and they bought the lot and made them into, because in those days, kettle chips were a big, thick, burnt, ugly thing. So I looked, looked into this more, and then I, there's a brand called Cape Cod in the UK, and they were sort of imported from America, and these are beautiful hand-fried chips. So I had the idea, and being quite in, impatient, I, I, and that, one thing we were talking about earlier, which is quite interesting, and only 15 years ago, you didn't have Google, so if you had an idea and you wanted to create something, you couldn't just, nowadays, you just get your laptop out and you can find whatever, from whether it's a skin ailment or anything, you can find it straight away then. If you want to build a crisp brand and make, start making crisps, how do you do it? So you have to go and sneak around other people's factories, of which I tried to go in a few. Then I had a flight over to America. So I went into the Cape Cod factory, and I tried to sneak in around the back door, and they wouldn't let me. And then they wouldn't give me a tour. So all I could do was buy a mug and just see a few fries and things through the window, so I didn't know where to get these fries from. So I was a bit sort of low on that one. And so I went back to my hotel. I stayed in New York. And um, there was a packet of goods chips, and on the back it said from from Ken Potter, come and see me. So I rang him up straight away, and he said, yeah, come out and see me. So I cancelled my flight, and then hired a car, and went out to New Holland. And I met this guy that got a fleet of Amish people all working in his cookers, and he was making these chips. And basically, he taught me everything to do, where to buy the stuff from, where to buy the fryers, how to do it, and introduced me to these guys of about 14 brothers that lived in the middle of nowhere that would come and teach my guys on the farm how to cook and make chips. So could, cut a long, cut a long story short. Could you possibly have managed to do it with without that? No, no, I think that was because well, we were having a conversation about luck, whether you have luck in life or do you make your own luck or what, how it happens. And I think you, everybody's now, there's so many entrepreneurs now and so many people want to get at it and they're all looking for their widget. But you can't just sit there and think of your widget. You've got to go and physically, I think, create prod a, a prod and, and find. And, yeah. yeah, and do something you enjoy with it as well. So it was, but I think the interesting thing with, with, with Tyrrell's when it was born, we had the idea in October, 2001, and by April, with a shed full of potatoes, by April 2002, just over six months later, we had all, sold all the potatoes out of the shed. We turned it into a fully-fledged crisp factory with five flavors, which I think was quite cool in six months to have learned that without Google, to have done that. That's one of the things in my life that keeps surprising me a little bit to this day, how we managed to do it, luckily, so quickly. You know, we, were, we had the factory ready. We were looking at the end of the drive every day for this container coming from America, hoping it hadn't sunk or it gone and got stuck in customs, <laughs> to getting it all there. So it's all quite exciting. And then suddenly, from going from a farmer, as soon as Tyrrells was born, to having a brand. So instead of being bashed every day with your loads being rejected, you're actually selling something to people that they, they appreciate it. Uh, sorry. So, so, so um, the thing with your past is you would have known very, very well how to deal with the supermarket. So that would have been a really great advantage from that perspective. You yes. didn't know how to make the damn things, by mm -hmm. the way, but, but you knew that end of it. What about the branding piece in the middle? Because the Tyrrell's branding was very, very distinctive. Can you have a product that's average but have a great skin on the top you know, with it being branded? You know, will that work for you? Or, or what's your thought about the brand and, and how you decided to approach it? So that's a, that's a really key point, because today everybody thinks we're going to build this brand, we'll go to some brand designers, and they'll design this beautiful brand, stick it on this brand, and it'll just and get a dragon or somebody to come and support us and get us introduced to a supermarket, and we're going to sell the stuff. I think you have to find the magic, and, you, and it has to be sticky. A brand has to have that. It's like a person. You meet a really exciting person, the more you talk to them, the better they get. It gets better and better and better, whereas 
some you just meet and like brands and there's nothing behind. You know, it's just a, it's told on a few stories. So, Tyrrell's branding. I went to see a few local agencies and different people and they all had these ideas and all they did was they went to every other crisp packet. They went to Sensations, Kettle Chips and all the others and they took a little bit from all of them and stuck it on a packet and they said, no, no, they, they're sort of there you are. So, I thought, we can do this ourselves. So we just, the Tyrrell's the brand was just it? a sign <laughs> off the, it was, was just sort of the sign off the end of the drive. Marks and Spencer's have got black and white pictures at the time on the front of their packets. And I thought, we'll have a bit of that and we can do all this ourselves. So we just stuck the packets together. And, um, and that's how the sort of brand came alive. So there was no, it was all designed in-house, everything was done in-house, which taught me an awful lot about marketing that you don't, Probably the biggest thing that that taught me was there's no book of rules. If you want to do something, don't go to the experts, because there are no experts. And I think the one thing, everybody's looking for a mentor. I was looking for a mentor when I was young, and I was always looking for the wicked witch in the woods that would give me the answers to all these problems, because if you're trying to do something, it's a, it's a constant junction of, should we go left here or should we go right all the time? So, and you can only do that yourself based on your own knowledge on things you've picked up. And, and the thing with brand for me, um, you, you know, I have my own business as well, is it's not just about what you see on the outside. It has to be the culture of the company as well. And I think that's one of the things that came through for me with Tyrrells, is you might have something like Sensations or whatever, but it felt a bit impersonal to me. I didn't know what that company was. I sort of knew the crisps. I didn't understand what was behind it. And I think for me, when Tyrrells came on the scene, is it felt like it was a company with a personality, with real people behind it. And the packets sort of managed to show that. And they did. And, and that was the whole thing, the first thing it taught me, is when you're writing a back, you're, when you're writing your story and communicating your story, don't say, at Tyrrell's, where we pride ourselves on winning the world's best prize for making the best, and we're awarded the best awards, and we get up early in the morning and brush the dew off our lovely potatoes. And I think you have to talk to people as if they're your friends. So and the bank manager told me this once at the very beginning, the bank manager I got in trouble with, but he said, you mustn't go over the top of a door like a bully, and you mustn't go under the door like too much of a, you've got to go, when you communicate with people, you've got to communicate with them on their level. So I think when, you, when a brand communicates with people, it should be talking to them as if it's their friend, and not trying to bully, because people are too intelligent today, so we are the best, and we're voted the best, and this is... And we're, we're marvellous. So, so you're trying to form a relationship is what you're saying? Uh, yeah, I think it's, it's reverse psychology. So the other key thing that taught me, one thing was the journalist taught me an awful lot from early days of Tyrrells, actually looking at a journalist, and every time they came out to write a story, not being arrogant, I'd probably sit there, and probably if I'm now, if I waffle too much now, to, we'll move on, but it, it's, um, and they just pick all the little bits they like out and then focus that, that's the story. So I think that's what you have to do with a brand. You have to look, get somebody else, don't be too inward, get somebody on the outside all the time to look at it. Yeah. So now with all our businesses, when somebody starts, I would say, well, it's new. Tell me what you see now, because once it becomes part of you and it's your baby, everybody's baby looks beautiful to them, but maybe not to other people. So it's, it's, it's how get they see it. Back, yeah. So, so, so you've got um, the, the Tyrrells Crisps doing really, really well, um, be becoming very well known. Tell us the story, the real story behind your relationship with Tesco's, because it was in the press quite a bit at the time. What, what really happened? It was. That was probably one of the key, um, key things I think I learned with the business, because just before we started Tyrrells, Tesco's actually helped create me. They helped pay me for my potatoes quickly, so I could buy them these pretty potatoes to go into Tesco's at the beginning. So I'm not... You know, and, and we, with Tesco's and Sainsbury's and all the big guys have done so much for food, speaking as a farmer in the last 20 years, to get it cleaned up. When I started trading potatoes, you're going to see a farmer, he'd have straw coming out of his hair, he'd have a loader with all cow muck all over, and he'd drive into his tump of 
spuds, and there'd be rats and mice running everywhere, and he'd stick them into bags. And that's how the food was done. So, because Tesco's, Sainsbury's, all the big four at the time, actually cleaned up. They put standards in place, which farmers didn't like it. So I'm not anti-supermarkets at all. They did so much to clean up the Food Act. Not, not the government or anybody else. This is actually the retailers. Did a phenomenal job in the 80s and the 90s. But once they got it all cleaned up, then they got to keep going further and further. So uh, the story with the Tesco story with, with um, Tyrrells was I started at the beginning just in independence. I didn't want to be through distributors. Because the Americans taught me, just look after your independence, because they're little people with a little business, and they'll sell your product for you. So they'll, they'll put a little stand up, and it's still the same today with, with, with Tyrrells and with Chase and with Willys, that I believe that if you've got uh, an independent retailer, they've got to pay their mortgage. They don't want something that's priced for two for one in the supermarket. They want something that, mm. that they can sell, being a little bit exclusive, and they can make a margin on it. So, and so. We learned so much from looking after the little ones. The Americans taught me that, was just always focus on the little ones. And this is one good moral in business. If you look after the little customers, the big customers will all come along. So it's all about that customer service. And is that service. where you should start? I Definitely. To me, people think, oh, we're going to get this magic brand, and we're going to go straight into multiples. But I think you have to, you have to please. There's 6,000 independent grocery retailers in this country. And if you can get all those 6,000 to love you and give them the service, and sell your product on your behalf. The supermarkets all come because there's a desire. If you go straight to a supermarket to sell your brand, the first thing they're going to say to you is, how are you going to sell it? Because we're not going to sell it. You've got to sell it with shelf talkers, squeakers, wobblers, ladders, gondola ends, you name it, and we'll keep charging you for it. So you, ha you have to create that desire, first of all, that stickiness. So, so I think, and always to me in my career, I think the independents are guys that face the hardest job. When I, when I set up Tyrrells, I went to see a lady with a sandwich bar in Essex. And um, she was serving at the counter. She's quite angry. But when I started Tills, I drove around the whole country. I just had yellow pages then, because obviously there's no Google. So I had to find out all of these delis and farm shops and places. And I drove around them all myself to go and see them. And I was in the queue, and there was a man in front of me in a, in a shiny suit. And he got his samples or something. And he said, um, can I interest you? And she, she wasn't very polite about it. She's, there was a few Fs. And she said, you can get out of here. So then it was my turn to present my, my stuff to her. So I said. Here's a box of crisps. I said, I can see you're not having a good day. I'll, I'll call you later. And um, she rang me later. She said, I'm not normally like that. I don't, I don't get like that. She said, two of the staff hadn't turned up for work. Somebody had been sick on the floor. Somebody knocked over one of my stands. And the bread hadn't turned up for the sandwiches. So you've got a real person here with a real business. That she said, great, I loved your crisps, and I'll list them. But she didn't want the sales pitch and the story. So, so I think that taught me an awful lot about independent people with their businesses. You've got to understand and talk to them how. And, and is that why you, you chose to delist Tesco? Be, be, because you well, wanted to concentrate well, on the smaller ones? Once we started, we could sell everything we could make, and we didn't need the supermarkets. And the other thing, we were selling at 40% higher than Sensations or Kettles. So when we were on Waitrose, Waitrose was making 40% more profit out of Tyrrells than they would ever make out of Kettles without promoting them. So we had, we had the whole of the snack sector in Waitrose, which was brilliant because they were making more money out of Tyrrells and they went in other supermarkets. So Waitrose loved it and Waitrose did an awful lot. And, and so that's how the brand was evolving. So it's always like a pyramid. You've got to start off at the top, especially in premium, and then one day you'll finish off down in the mass market, but not to be in too much of a rush there. So we could sell everything we could. Our margins, we were making a net profit on Tyrrells about 40%, which was fantastic at the time. So because it was, we were making a packet of crisps, selling it for a pound. The retailers selling it for two pounds. So all the independent retailers are making 50 pence a packet profit on every packet of crisps they sold. So they're making more money out of Tyrrells than anything else. So I think this was the bit. 
It's quite amazing how many little retailers we were dealing with that didn't even realize how much money they were, they were probably making yeah. out of it. But it was, it was a great, great way to build it. And so we created this desire, and then Sainsbury's came along, and other supermarkets all wanted to stop tills at the same time. And we were just sort of holding on to where we were, trying to, I was focusing on export rather than, and, than diluting the brand and making it worth less in the UK. So one day the phone went and there was, um, we were in Tesco. So Tesco's had gone out and they bought about five or six lorry loads of Tyrrells and they put them on the grain market and they put them in their shops at the same price as Kettles and Sensations. So we had the meeting, they called and they said, you've got to come and see us and, um, if you want to talk about this. So I went to see them. And they said, here's five, basically, they said, here's five million quid's worth of business, and you should get back on your farm, and you should do what you know best in farming and making things, and leave them retailing and that to us. So they said, but you've got to be 30% less, and you've got to sell tills at the same price as Sensations and Kettles. So I said, we're not going to do that. So I thought about it for a nanosecond, and I thought, we'll either trade um, five million pounds worth of sales, because that's what they said. We can have, so you can have all our sales and you can have all our own label, but then we've got to drop our prices and drop our margins, or um, that's it, that's the only way we'll deal with you. So um, I thought about it for an, a minute, and then afterwards, I thought we're not going to go down this road. And then the Telegraph were interested in it, and they were going to do a feature on it. So I sold my soul, sold the story to the Telegraph, and then in the end, it was just a tiny little box in the corner of the, of the page. So I thought, oh, I'm giving away five million quid of the business for this little bit in the Telegraph. <laughs> but then on the Sunday night, the phone went, and then it was the Today programme, and they wanted to talk about, it was the Archbishop of Canterbury as well, as doing something for untrade, unfair trading for small, small businesses and fair trade and stuff. So I went to this at six o'clock in the morning, and then by 10 o'clock, there, there was the BBC and the whole media's main story for the day. So luckily, there was no... You know, fortunately, there was no bombs or anything nasty going off in the day, so we owned the whole media slot for the whole day, which was fantastic PR. So it was like this David and Goliath thing, and it was quite interesting reading how the Times and the Telegraph write about mm. it, to then how the other tabloids write about it anyway, about this farmer driving to London on his tractor, meeting these, these toxic buyers with cofted hair and shiny nylon suits, and, you know, telling him to get back. So, but it's quite interesting, the whole, it taught me a lot about marketing and brand strength, so I think... It didn't relate in any bigger sales or any stronger sales, but it just gave the brand strength that it's actually strong enough to stand up for what it believes in, because a lot of people are so desperate to deal with the big guys, they'll do whatever it takes. And once you, give, once you start off giving discounts and you give stuff away, they say anybody can sell fivers for four quid. It's not difficult. So, mm. so it's, it's just learning how to... And so I think, I think the, you know, the moral of the story there is, I think what you're saying is that... that You've got to look at your profit, and actually, you know, just having turnover is, is a bit of vanity in, in a way. If you're not making lots of profit, then, 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 you know, how are you going to survive? How are you going to pay your mortgage? How are you going to do stuff? Um, and what you've got to really look is, is look at your figures and understand the bigger picture. Because if, if you're doing, you know, what, what does success look like? Is it because you want to make money? Is it because you want to so create an amazing brand that everybody knows? Is it about volume? But you've got to be clear. And if it is about volume, you're going to face price pressure, aren't you? Yes. Uh, undoubtedly. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's the thing. So how did you then sell the company? What, what brought you to that? And that was, um, that was a tricky one because the business was going so quickly, I couldn't find... I couldn't find... Everybody said, oh, you've got to have a managing director. And I thought, oh, we're doing all right. We've got a great guy in sales and a great guy in production. And so I wish I hadn't listened to anybody else and I just carried on with that, because that's all you need in the business. You just need two, up to say, I think, up to at least 100 million. You just need two good people. You need one person to make the stuff and source it all, and one good person to sell it. And it's as simple as that. And so it's, 
that's what we sort of struggled with. So there were many, many issues with the business as it was growing. And it was growing very quickly. And I think once you get the opportunity to grow, you have to grow. The business, the business is bigger than all of us. So however personal you get with a business, the business is its own thing. And I think the business, if it has the opportunity to grow very fast, it has to take that opportunity, it has to grow. So that, that, was, the, that was the toughest, toughest call. So I thought and at the time... And what sort of turnover was that at the time, roughly? We, we were doing then about 16 million, and we were making about 4.5 million profit. So, um, and that was EBIT. So it's a good... It was a good, 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 strong trading company. So, and then we, we were just about to go into the recession and different things. And it was like a lot of private issues at the time. I think probably I could, I could, you can get arrogant. You can think you have a divine right to suddenly make brands like this. So, <laughs> so there, there is a little bit of that. I think there's a lot to... And it's the family. If you've got the family in the business as well, the family. But if you've got the family in the business as well, it's quite sort of... Um, it's without getting uh, laid back. And, and I think... And I thought, well, if you could do it once, I thought the challenge was to see if, if you could do it again, is to like build a brand. Because to me, there was nothing better than seeing your brand in retailers. And is that the people exciting pick it out. That's more exciting yeah. than the money, I think, for me, is to, as a farmer, is to actually produce something, a commodity, turn it into something that turns people on, and they tell. To me, it's all about the females, millennial females picking up, finding brands. You have a look in Selfridges, Fortnum's, Harvey Nicks, you'll always see a couple of girls walking around together, that'll see something and the one will tell the other one, have you seen this? Have you discovered this? Or someone's having a dinner party and they'll have something on the table and they say, I've discovered this. And, and everybody wants to tell everybody else about this brand. So if a brand's sticky, everybody wants to, if it's fun and, and it's doing something and it's making its customers' life better and more exciting, I think that's... Um, so, so, so you sold the business. How did you feel about that at the time? We're going to go on to your vodka thing in a minute, but... How did it feel? Did it feel like you'd sold a baby? Or did you, at that point, go, no, this is the right time and I'm ready now to move on to something else? No, no it was. Uh, starting with venture capitalists, my, my advice to anybody is never get into bed with venture capitalists if you want to... Um, because if you <laughs> want to preserve the pedigree of, you, of your business and the soul, but then it's what the business wants to become. But if the business wants to grow very quickly, it needs... It, it needs people running it that it's not their money. So when I had terrors, if somebody's overspending on the paper clips or they left the lights on at night time, I would get really angry about it. So I was like this an angry old bird that was, that was trying to control all the costs all the time or expenses. If I thought people were putting too much expenses, I'd leave it in a pile on my desk for a month and not pay it. And so, so you know, you get, when it's your money, you think this is my money. And it's, it's quite hard that you've put all your life's money and everything into that business. But it's... It, but naturally, it grows. So as a business grows, if it's somebody else's money, it's not, it's, it doesn't matter if people turn the lights on or they leave the cookers on or the shed burns down. It's not, it's not their money. It's somebody else's money. So you're going from a culture to be a small family business where everybody... And everybody that works in that business is working for the business. The most interesting thing with selling a business is everybody suddenly starts working for themselves as they all start worrying about their holidays and their package and their time off and their and they're not thinking about the business. So it's this metamorphic side of us. I I've, have a lot of admiration for small businesses that grow into really large businesses, family businesses, and they manage to keep that culture, integrity yeah. and culture yeah. in the business. That's quite a hard thing to do. It, it is a difficult one. So, mm -hmm. so I think that's probably the biggest thing I've learned from that. But then the business is bigger than all of us, and the business has to grow without a narrow-minded farmer worrying about the paper clips and who's turning <laughs> the lights off. So it, yeah. it has to have us bigger. Yeah. And then why vodka? So, um, do, do it worked, like it worked for drink? Tyrrells at the time. The other thing, <laughs> not at the time, no, no, I was sort of, I was an occasional drinker before, I'd say, before I actually got into the industry. And, um, 
and my knowledge on, on super premium spirits and, and spirit, wine and spirits was, was almost non-existent. I used to think Bacardi was a brand. I didn't realize it was a white rum. So when people asked for a Bacardi and Coke, they were, they were now sorts of rum they'd want. They wouldn't know what they were talking about. So it's, it's quite a, it's the learning, learning side of it. I thought we worked well with Tyrrell. Suddenly, once something becomes on trend in fad, there were thousands of little crisp makers coming out and everybody's building crisp factories and there's more brands coming out than you could, you could imagine. So I thought it's time for something else. I was, I met a guy called Sidney Frank that had built Grey Goose, and he built Grey Goose just on stories, just on French stuff. There's no pedigree behind it or anything, but people were paying a fortune for this product. So I thought if we did the same we did with Tyrrells, with spirits. So at the time, you couldn't have a license and you couldn't build a distillery in the UK. You had to have a, a, a 5,000 litre still, so you needed a boiler the size of a lorry. So it was a few million quid to build a distillery then in 2007. So I thought this would be a great thing to get into, and we can re-educate everybody in the white spirits world about what spirits are actually made of. Mm -hmm. And if we could do that, that'd be really exciting and you're educating. And, um, but the, a year later, the government, in its wisdom, decided to drop the, the um, threshold for spirits so you could put a tiny little still in your kitchen and you could start making gin. So that suddenly sucked in a year later all these what you see as micro and craft distilleries where people are buying cheap neutral grain spirit in for a few pence a litre, shaking it up, putting a few um, botanicals and selling it as a premium product, which, which Chase distilled the whole idea was we were actually growing it and making it ourselves and making it from our, we were fermenting it, mashing it, and the whole rectification process. But at the end of it, we are selling alcohol, so we're not selling something that's, that's <laughs> it is alcohol, isn't it? So it's good alcohol. I was, we've worked on Chase with a, it's, it, so it's taken a long time to get that message over about drinking less and drinking better. I think people are doing that now. Yeah. It is, it's taken a long time to get the message over, but it's really working now that if you are going to drink, drink, do everything in moderation, because the hardest thing as a farmer, you hear this food's good for you, then it's bad for you, or all these different things. But I think we all agree that you can drink anything, as long as you drink good quality, and you drink it in moderation, along with your broccoli and your exercise and everything else is all in balance with your Absolutely. probiotic. Well, we've just got about five or six minutes left. Um, uh, just explain to me how you wasted a couple of hundred grand on a popcorn factory. Well, I had the idea a few <laughs> years ago. I wanted to get back into something that I could get aggressive with <laughs> and sell fast. So I wanted to make fit foods. So I bought this air pop popcorn line and built a little factory to put it in to make, as you to do. make popcorn, as you do. And it was, I, thought, I thought it was great. We've got the customers, we've got the thing. But once you put it in there, the first part, the hardest part was it's like going back to school again and starting all over from scratch. So you need people with a passion. And there are very few people nowadays that will work 80 hours a week and they will put the job in front of their home life. So I couldn't find anybody to go in there and physically become the manager of it and own it, which was a real struggle. Plus then also, if I talked about popcorn, I could talk about it for about two minutes and then I'd run out of conversation. It's quite boring what you can do with polystyrene. So I was in, um, I bought this factory and I've got all this stuff going, so I thought, oh, what are we going to do with this? So I was in Whole Foods there meeting the buyer, and um, there were a couple of girls in there that were saying, where is it, where is it? And they were looking for this thing. So I thought, I'll follow them around, see what they're looking for. And then one of them shouted out, it's over here, and they found it, and it was like cider vinegar. So then they were, and they were telling me all about this cider vinegar, and, and, and I think Whole Foods in Kensington is probably one of their best-selling lines at the moment. So it was... Um, and, and it's time. got massive, uh, if, if anybody doesn't know at the moment, sign of India, 
loads and loads been written about it in terms of health benefits and, and, and all sorts of other things. Now, whether they're proven or not, I, I don't know. They are. But, but, it's, but it's <laughs> they are, according <laughs> to William. Um, but but, but there's, there's, uh, th there's a real trend, I think, for people looking at cider vinegar in all sorts of ways. There is. And, yeah. we, and we've had trends in food, like we've had Weight Watchers and different ways of people trying to get fit. We've had the whey powder revolution, which... Yeah, it's a matter of opinion, that, isn't it? But I think we've had all these different things. But I think as far as food goes, all we want as, as human beings is really good quality food that you know where it's come from and you know about it. So I think what, what's become really exciting now is like probiotic foods. And so people are actually interested in their guts, which was, a, which was a dirty subject before nobody to speak about now. But everybody's talking about pH, alkaline foods, acid foods, what you should be eating and how you're eating it. So, so that, for me, I see is the next massive trend in the food and drink business. Whether you're producing alcohol it's still about getting rid of sugar. Sugar's, sugar's bad, sugar's out. And it's actually accepted that it's bad and yeah. it's out now. So sugar is definitely out. Like plastic, it's taken so long for people to suddenly decide, you know, now they've all decided plastic's out, plastic is out, isn't it? So it's, it's, it's changing times. I think it's back to trends, fads. So, so to me, I think that's, for my life, that's the next, as we call it Willies, the brand. It took years to decide on Willies because some people snigger and they have a little giggle. And they're mostly girls that run the business as well with Willies. But it's just taken off and it's got the magic and it's very sticky because it's on trend. We can talk all about the, the credentials of it and the back of it and what it would do for your life. So it's, it's quite nice without sounding like a preacher to actually be selling something to people that, that does them a lot of good. So, it's so you've got apple cider, vin apple cider vinegar uh, uh, at the moment. What happened to the popcorn factory? So the popcorn factory has <laughs> now turned into a kombucha and cider vinegar making line. So we bought this machine that's like an acifier, so it turns kombucha in a, in a continuous process into kombucha and cider vinegar. So we can make the next step now is we want to make this drink so you can drink it every day as, um, as, a, as, sort of as, as a natural. We're not sure whether it's a natural energy or a remedy, because when you go and see the experts, they also have to get in your category. And that's always been something quite difficult for me to get in a box to get in a category, but I think it's... It's, it's a very interesting market. It's a very interesting place where, where it's going to, where, where trends are moving so quickly. Though I think well, I was with some guys yesterday, and they were saying that the amount of startups and small food and drink businesses coming to the market now, say there were two, in every two there were 10 years ago. Five years ago, there was something like six or seven. Today, there's something like 70, 80. So there's just like, I can't believe, like gins. Whoever's, whoever's going to go and build a gin brand would have to be totally crazy today because there's like 250 gin brands a year coming, and I thought this is going to stop, but it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. And so yeah. once something becomes on trend, everybody, everybody has to jump on that trend. So I think it's, it's back to that old-fashioned thing, trying to go direct to your customers and get on the train early, not when it's leaving the station, but yeah, to try and definitely. get it before. So Without sounding too arrogant, but that was, yeah. that was, that was sort of how so I... So it's apple cider vinegar for you. You sound as passionate as you ever were. I heard a quote that you said you want it to be bigger than Red Bull. Is that true? I'd love to make a... Well, Ed, Red Bull's worth 80 billion bucks a day, <laughs> And that's it? what you're aiming and, for. And that's... Well, I think we've got to do a lot of work for that. But it's... Um, <laughs> it's Red Bull is so bad, they reckon... Yeah, I've got to be careful what I say on that. But the amount of people that drink it before they go and play sports, and then they get into serious problems afterwards. And, and, and we're in this... In this protection thing, like McDonald's, you look. Do you remember the supersize me thing, where the guy ate all those McDonald's and he made himself so big, and then he, he and he got his cholesterol tested, but they, they managed to scotch all that and get over it. We've had so many recent issues with things like chickens and poultry, and it's it's quite interesting how big brands are at the moment are bigger and stronger than the, they do actually own own the audience. But then they're suddenly going to go and have, you know, who would go to McDonald's for a salad? You know, it's not really. 
Mm. But maybe, maybe, th maybe things can change. So it's just that back to that category thing and trends and fads for uh, how, how you work it. So my takeaway um, from this morning really is, is uh, the brand is not just about how it looks on the outside. It has to be authentic right the way through, like a stick of rock. Staff, the way you do things, the way you talk about things, the passion has to come through. And hopefully your brand will reflect that. But, but you know, you've got to have that underneath. You've got to have passion. <coughs> you've got to work hard. This isn't, this isn't, in some respects, a lifestyle business. It's really hard work if you're going to make it work. And, 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 and stick to your principles, I think, is, and, and, and uh, probably and I, uh, yeah, I think don't cut your prices too much. Mm -hmm. You know, stay true. Try and stay at the premium end. And don't jump on the bandwagon when everybody else is there. Try and get, get on early. Yeah. I, I mean, I'd say the key from everything is, is not to... Is, is to be humble about it and honest and not arrogant. Always look what you're doing from the outside and not from the inside, how other people would look at it, and not how you look at it from, yeah. from inside. It's, it's the, the, one of the best expressions, I, one of my favorites used to be, when you're in a hole, stop digging. And I think the, the, the latest one I'd say is don't meet your heroes, because everybody thinks there's an expert, or there's, and when you meet your heroes, they're so boring, or there's, there's so many people <laughs> I wanted to meet. And I've had dinner with them, and they've been, they've been so boring, or they've been so, because, it, it, it's, it, because it's like if you guys are going, somebody's going out for a good night out, if you get very excited about something, it normally lets you down. And the times that it's exciting is when you least expect it. So I think if, if, if there's, there's is don't expect, there's no wicked witch in the woods, there's, there's, no, there's no book of rules. So I think it's, you have to be in it to win it, and, to, to find and learn, and learn quickly. Yeah. Um, so William Chase of Tyrrell's Chase Vodka and now Willie's Apple Cider Vinegar. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. What uh, an incredible man, um, William Chase. I'm not sure whether it inspires me to go into the food industry or to make me avoid it, um, but it's very interesting to see somebody so successful uh, be so frank about how they got there. Um, please do listen to us next week. It's the Christmas special and we'll be playing our favourite bits. Um, and as you know, you've been listening to the Food Talk Show and we're syndicated to dozens of radio stations across the UK and further afield. You can also download our weekly podcast from iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, the podcast app on your phone, as well as the wonderful Great British Chefs website. Um, please do get in touch with us via Twitter on at Food Talk Show if you know of anybody who's doing something groundbreaking in the food sector we'd love to hear from you um, if not why not go onto the foodtalk.co.uk website and listen to any of our hundreds of podcasts that we've recorded in the past um, i hope you have a good week bye